Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Uh, it's an auspicious day. Uh, we are on the uh, chapter, I think it's the ninth chapter up there. Yep. Is it? I can still count, of the Dhammapada. Um, last Tuesday's class was the Sahasavaga, the chapter um, called it Sahasavaga. And that's a very um, light and uplifting chapter uh, where the Buddha is describing um, in, in very uh, visceral detail. <laughs> Uh, the benefits of um, uh, an authentic, uh, well-informed, well-focused Dharma practice. Uh, this, uh, this chapter, uh, the Papavaga, is a contrast to it. And as I read it, it there's, there's sections here that um, can seem pretty stern and even maybe dark. Uh, but remember, the Buddha never taught a utopic or salvific uh, Dharma. Uh, he taught an understanding of the world, the problems of living in the world, and a way to not take any of this personally, and in so free our minds, liberate our minds from being entangled uh, in a uh, chaotic world, and develop a calm and peaceful mind no matter what's occurring. And so now the Buddha does again doesn't leave us in this this utopic view, because he knows that that's a that's a hurtful and a hateful view. It's rooted in ignorance. What he does do is always present, and I hope we do it here, a balanced teaching on what we're, what we're actually developing an awareness of, which is not perfection. It's not heaven. We're developing an understanding of life on earth as a human being. I know that that sounds uh, disappointing to many, especially those that are so-called spiritual seekers that are looking for miracles and mystical establishments. All that's fine. People have a right to live however they want in their heads. I found a way that allows me to live with common peace and understanding of what's occurring. And I, I choose this over that, even though I chased that for many years. And so the Buddha here in this chapter is pointing out how to maintain fidelity with what he's teaching, but the consequence and the results of those that don't. And again, it's an important thing to keep in mind. The Buddha's words. Be quick to act wisely and restrain your mind from delusion. And again, the Buddha starts out with that we know, Aaron, you might not know quite yet, but you will after just a couple of classes, what the Buddha means by that and how we, how we end delusion. It's very clear. It's, the Buddha doesn't teach us something uh, as a concept, end delusion, without telling us <clears throat> what delusion is and where it arises. Delusion, as far as the Dhamma is concerned, arises from ignorance of four noble truths. The Buddha continues, the mind delights in delusion for those who are slow to act wisely. Our minds delight in delusion if we're slow to act wisely. It just means that if we don't take to this practice wholeheartedly, and again, if we want to, if we want to awaken, if we don't do it wholeheartedly, our minds will always delight in the delusion we came here with. How do we act wisely? How do we act wisely? Anybody have an answer for acting wisely within the Buddha's Dhamma? Ah, what a terrible teacher. Within the framework of the Eightfold Path. That's how we act wisely. I'm sorry. It's a piss. 
Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you, Steve. You have to fall off paid full pass. Hey, there it is. There's the gold star. <coughs> the first gold star. I mean, that is it. I know it's such an obvious question that, uh, that I think we all know what I was talking about, but Steve was the first one to say it. The mind delights in delusion for those who are slow to act wisely. Should a person commit harm to themselves or others, let them not repeat the harm over and over. So again, the Buddha is talking about what he noticed out in the world, that people that harm themselves or others tend to do it over and over again. And he's saying to those people, you don't got to lay on the couch of analysis to figure it out. You don't need to beat the hell out of yourself to stop. What you need to do is recognize it. Let them find no pleasure in wrongdoing, as wrongdoing always brings pain. Although there's many of us that kept thinking that the, the actions that were bringing such horrible results in my life, as long as I could keep doing them, somehow they get better. I'm talking about addiction. Um, but we do that in all kinds of ways. We do it in different types of addictions and compulsions. We do it with ideologies. Look at the world today. The world is, is polarized by tribes insisting that their ideologies are right and other tribes are wrong. And we become intransigent in these very narrow beliefs. And everybody thinks they're right. Of course, everybody's wrong about that, aren't they? But we, we've all taken a position. We've all dug our heels in today, except us in this room. Yeah, maybe not. Why do we do it? Because we're taking everything so damn personally, including nonsense like politics. And the Buddha recognizes the same issues. Remember the Loka Sutta? I looked out in the world and the world was aflame. Aflame with what? Aflame with the fires of passion. The fires of self-centered, self-referential behavior. And the Buddha is emphasizing that in this chapter. Be mindful of skillful acts and repeat these over and over again. Find pleasure in the well-integrated life and calm and peace will prevail. Excuse me. What are the skillful acts that we should repeat over and over again? How do we know what skillful acts are? They're framed by right speech, right action. Jen was going to answer before. I'm just going to say the Eightfold Path again. The Eightfold Path. And, and again, specifically, the right speech, right action, right livelihood. Those three factors of the Eightfold Path encompass all of human behavior because all of our behavior comes out in our speech or in our actions. In fact, if we're not too sure about what we're talking about, look at what our actions are, and they'll tell us every time. If we want to know what we're holding in mind, watch what comes out of our mouth, because that will tell us every time, especially what we're telling ourselves. Find pleasure in the well-integrated life, and common peace will prevail. Whenever you hear me write well-integrated, the, um, the original translation from the Pali to the English, or maybe from the Chinese or the German to the English, is holy. But holy, the Buddha never taught a religion or a salvific type of, of philosophy. So holy simply means wholly engaged or wholly integrated with the Eightfold Path. So in order to take that, uh, any type of religious or spiritual connotation to that, I change holy always to well integrated. Well integrated with the Eightfold Path. Wrongdoing can be ignored, but the pain that eventually follows cannot. Every drink I took 
was, was to stop the pain. And every drink I took and every drug I took only increased the pain. Not in the moment. And that's such a, a, a vivid example of why people become addicted, but not just the substances, to their own ideas. Because their ideas or the heroin or the alcohol makes you feel better in the moment. But the ideology or the heroin will always have a price. Alcohol and drugs isolated me from the world, but my ideologies did even, even in a more intense um, and unrecognizable way, a more pernicious way, a way that was even more difficult to recognize because it wasn't so obvious. I knew that I could just get rid of drugs and alcohol, my life would get better. I didn't know at the time that I had to change my mind if I was going to stay away from drugs and alcohol and all the rest of my compulsive behaviors. And even that was a struggle until I came to what the Buddha actually taught. And then I understood the nature of addiction and compulsion and the nature of deluded thinking. It had nothing to do with the world. It had everything to do with me and my choices. It really is. It supports a deluded mind. Yes. What supports a deluded mind? Wrong view. Wrong view. And so maintaining wrong view, which, which is the problem even within Dharma practice, striving for right view, is people clinging to wrong view and hoping to bring that wrong view into right view. This is when we talk about a pure Dhamma. We're not talking, again, about some kind of moral um, view, although you might say an ethical view. It has to be pure because it must be pure. A deluded mind cannot maintain a shred of delusion and hope to not be. And how did the Buddha describe that upon his awakening? You, everybody, well, and everybody sees that today. I can't remember if that... No. It, most people have seen the picture of the Buddha with his left hand pointing up. There's all kinds of mystical connotations of what that means. I think I just, I'm going to be silly about it. And his right hand touching the earth. The right hand touching the earth is a significant part of that pose. And what he means is I've overcome the world. What he says about that is there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. That's what we're developing within our own minds. Nothing left within us to provoke to instigate, to inform another moment rooted in ignorance. And it's that type of purity that is entirely possible. In fact, I would say you can expect it through Dhamma practice. You can clear your mind of all delusion rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths through this simple and direct practice. Wrongdoing can be ignored, but the pain that eventually follows cannot. We should be all very happy for that. Because if it wasn't for suffering, there'd be no liberation. Skillful actions will always bring peace and understanding. Always. So how do we know if we're acting in accordance with the Dhamma? We're increasing our peace. We're, in, we're increasing our understanding of ourselves. That can be a little subtle uh, at times. How do we know we're increasing our understanding of ourselves? Because I'll start understanding you better. I'll be more at peace and calm with the things that, that you used to do that drove me crazy because I understand my own craziness. This is a true way, you know, if you, if you want to talk about um, bringing peace to the world, true peace and understanding, it is through this, and it is through understanding, isn't it? It's not through telling people to act differently or insisting that everybody conform to my view of the world. That obviously just keeps creating conflict in, our, in my mind, and if it's in my mind, it's in your mind. So the only way that I can hope to end conflict in the world, and I hope to do it, I don't think I will, but I hope to do it, 
since I hope to do it, I have to do it myself first. I have to end conflict in my life first. Think about that for a moment. This is, this is not a John Haspel uh, breakthrough of understanding. This is a Siddhartha Gautama breakthrough of understanding from 2,600 years ago. And yet me and all the rest of us haven't learned the lesson yet. We're trying. I have, to a certain extent. But we haven't learned this one simple fact. If I want to end conflict in the world, the conflict is occurring where? It's in my mind. And so I have to end conflict in my mind. And you know what? It works. From the minute I was born, I like to, I like to say when, when I was born, I looked up and I punched the doctor because I was born angry. And I was. I was an angry little kid. I had no reason to be angry. I grew up in you know, middle-class America. Mom and Dad took care of me and gave me food and clothes and all that. But I was angry. And I was angry because I didn't understand, even as a 3-year-old or a 5-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 20-year-old, what the hell I was doing here. I was in conflict, and I was conflicted between establishing the me in the world that I learned from conditioned thinking was lacking and broken to some extent, trying to make that person somehow successful in a world that I was scared to death to be in. And I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. And so I spent the beginning part of my (coughs) adult life trying to figure out how the hell do I fit in a mind that couldn't fit. It was an impossible task. And in my case, it resulted in certain behaviors. In other people, it results in different behaviors. But it's all acts of delusion. Until I came away, I found a way to not practice to be a better person, to not fix something that wasn't broken, or to establish myself in some magical or mystical future plane of existence called heaven, I never wanted that. Even though I practiced to do it, I didn't want it. What I wanted to do was to understand what the hell is wrong with me. Why am I so disappointed in my life and the world around me? Why do I look out in the world and see a world that's a flame that I think should be different rather than accepting it and understanding it? Because I didn't know how. And then I took to a Buddha's Dhamma and I developed that. I developed a simple way of looking out in the world that leaves my mind free of conflict. And so... I don't think I bring conflict into the world anymore. Others have to tell me that, but I don't think I do. Skillful actions will always bring peace and understanding. Ignorance of the results of wrongdoing is not protection from pain. Ignorance of the results of wrongdoing is not protection from pain. Never stops the pain. Let me go out and buy another dress. Let me spend 15 hours on Twitter. Let me spend every day on a golf course or gambling or, or in idle chatter with friends or day after day after day in Buddhist classes or going to church every Sunday or synagogue or sangha or voting the right way or protesting or all the things that human beings do to avoid changing the way they think. The Buddha understood that. Upon his awakening, he thought seriously, considered for two more weeks, if there was a way to break that veil of ignorance that human beings cling to. Again, from 2,600 years ago. This problems are still the same, isn't it? Human beings clinging to ignorance of reality. And this is a way of breaking through it. It's a gentle way. It's a direct way. A drop at a time fills the pot, 
just as pain fills the wrongdoer. That's true as far as continuing ignorance and awakening. A drop at a time, gentleness, fills the pot. Understanding the value of virtue guides one's actions. A drop at a time fills the pot, just as virtue fills one with peace and calm. Just as a trainer with, <clears throat> excuse me, just as a trainer with little protection avoids a dangerous, a dangerous a trader. I'm sorry, did I say trainer? Just as a trader with little protection avoids a dangerous route, and one desiring long life avoids poison, the disciple avoids wrongdoing. A hand with no wounds can carry even poison. The disciple avoids self-inflicted wounds and remains free of disease. Like dust thrown into the wind, pain will return to the fool who offends another. Born of the womb, born of the womb, the wicked suffer forever. The pious enter heaven. I love this line. It's so important because most of us would think, yeah, piety, that's good. What's the Buddha saying? The pious, it's a comment on those stuck in religious values at the time. And blindly practicing that faith. They might, they'll enter heaven. What does the Buddha teach us about heaven? It's a hurtful and hateful place. It's a place of speculation and imagination and pain and suffering. The Buddha teaches the disciple abandons ignorance. Neither in the heavens or deep water or a mountain sanctuary can hide the wrongdoer from the results of their actions. So you can do all the outer things that we hope to end our own individual self-loathing. You can, you can hide in the mountaintops. And in this tradition, there's a lot of uh, hero worship of people that spend long, long times out in the wilderness all by themselves. I'm not against it. I'd, I'd like to do that myself at times. But it's not Dhamma practice. Even Thomas Merton, many of you probably don't remember Thomas Merton anymore, but he was a, a great Christian uh, meditator. And one of the things he said, it still stays with me today, it was brilliant. And he was, he's worth reading, by the way, Thomas Merton. He said, it's okay to spend years on the mountaintop, and he's, he's inferring, in meditation. He says, but all of that is useless if you can't take it to the marketplace. Brilliant words, isn't it? What good is it? To spend years and years and years developing this exalted quality of mind that can't relate to moment-by-moment human life. And I've seen those people. I've had those people come to us I tell a quick story. Years, years ago now, probably five or six years ago, and you've heard this story a few times, I got a call from someone who I thought might become a student. They didn't live far from here, uh, about an hour away. And it was, they were very agitated. And he said, I said, you know, tell me what, what's going on. And he said, well, I've been a meditator for 18 years. And I said, I said what are you meditating? He says, I'm a Zen meditation. I've been meditating. And he said, and I've been focusing on nothingness. For all this time. And he says, I'm 38 years old. I got a beautiful, I lived in one of the, the wealthier sections of, our, of the world. The beautiful house, beautiful wife, three kids, two cars, three cars. He says, and I feel like I got nothing in my life. I says, tell me about your practice again. I've been for all these years, I've been focusing on nothingness. Say it again. What's your practice like? He says, I've been practicing, focusing on nothingness. And I can hear the light bulb go off over the phone. He was focusing on nothingness. He was a good practitioner in his lineage. And he almost destroyed his life. And he certainly destroyed his mind up until that moment. Focusing on that 
this idea that externally I can fix something without changing anything within him. That's what he got. He got nothing. Excuse me. He got nothingness. We read it again. Born of the womb, the wicked suffer forever. The pious enter heaven. They enter nothingness, like that meditator did. The disciple abandons ignorance. A direct practice. How do we do it? Through the Eightfold Path. Neither in the heavens or deep water or a mountain sanctuary can hide the wrongdoer from the results of their actions. The Buddha is using that word wrongdoer, but again, not in a moral way. He's not saying that the person who decides to spend 20 years in meditation on top of a mountaintop is a bad person or an evil person. They're a wrongdoer as far as developing right view. They're engaged, as David pointed out just a few minutes ago, they're continuing their wrong view even within a practice that if engaged with wholeheartedly, will develop right view. Excuse me. Neither in the heavens or a deep water or a mountain sanctuary can hide the wrongdoer from the living death of ignorance. That's the end of the chapter. Thank you. That, that is the reference um, that the Buddha consistently gives to living a life rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. He likens it to a living death. And it also reflects on the Buddha's teachings on birth. The Buddha never taught that anything about gaining a future rebirth uh, in some favorable plane. What he talked about is to be, excuse me, to be mindful of what we're giving birth to in each and every moment. That's the only birth situation that the Buddha is concerned about because it's the only birth situation that we can control ourselves. What am I giving rise to? What am I giving birth to in this moment? And how can I do that skillfully? By developing a calm mind rooted in jhana and the refined mindfulness that reflects or integrates the entire Eightfold Path. So, um, let's go online first. Uh, Brian, you were first on board. How are you this morning? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Excellent. Um, that first sentence, be quick to act wisely and restrain your mind from delusion. I, I just saw the entire Dhamma in that one sentence. Yep. That, that's all I got. That is, yeah, that's enough. And, and to see that is, is uh, that, uh, to see it as Dhamma practice as well, to be able to understand that. And we're all developing that understanding. Thanks, Brian. Steve, good morning. Good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's, uh, thank you. It's very uh, amazing. And it's, uh, this chapter is point right away to phonable truth. And it's a small teaching, four sentences. And it includes everything of human existence, life, everything. <laughs> able to touch it. It's amazing. And it's, yes, but it's hard to practice too, so <laughs> thank you for it. And also, uh, your phone conversation, remarkable story, I used to practice this type of Zen meditation that's called Shikantaza. Yep. Which is, yes, it's... Just sitting is what that means, sitting Shikantaza. Yes, just sitting. Yep. First of all, it's hard to do. And secondly, you're able to manage somehow. I don't know how, but... <laughs> And it's always look like feeling you missing something. Yeah. Always missing something. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. I, I engage in, in uh, I stopped using that word, chicken taza, uh, for many years. 
not getting anywhere and wondering what the hell was wrong with me, except there wasn't, except I had the wrong practice for, for me. <coughs> so, thank you, Steve. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Beautiful teaching. Thank you. Um, very, very full and rich. Um, and just thank you and everyone else for the wonderful retreat. That's still very close to me. Um, all the impacts that the retreat in Frenchtown, um, just the whole experience of being with everyone and, um, you know, listening to the Dhamma was really I brought that with me into this week. So thank you, uh, thank everybody. Yeah, and there really was nothing lost by not being up at one. I mean, I, I, I still love going up there. I think it might be overall a better experience, but it worked wonderfully well here. And yeah. French Town's a beautiful town. Yeah. Our ability to walk to our meals together Yeah. and use right speech along the path. The weather was nice. It just was... You know, beautiful weekend, so thank you. It really was. Thank you. Thank you for being there. Good morning, Tom. Morning, John. Um, yeah, I've got plenty. I, I really enjoy this passage, actually. Um, and as always, but perhaps especially today, there's um, a lot for me to reflect on personally. Um, so... Um, you know, that's what I love about the teachings, just that wherever you are at in life and what, whatever um, is most potentially causing you, you know, suffering or, or, or tempting you to, to, to sort of um, stray from the path, um, just being reminded of it and uh, having that chance to, to um, you know, in each moment come back to it is... Yeah. is you know, always so meaningful for me and so so challenging. So uh, that's all I've got to say, really. I've just got lot, lots to reflect on. I really enjoyed the teaching. Thank you uh, very much. And other than that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep uh, some sort of noble silence. <laughs> Thank you, noble Tom. That was uh, that was great. I'm glad you joined us today. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's just this. This isn't the uh, this isn't the penultimate sutta, is it? This this chapter, but there's so much in it. And again, the, we have to understand the foundation. But what you said, Tom, hearing something like this is an important one of the most important aspects of dharma practice because it's simply a reminder that to keep doing what we're doing. It keeps our head our head in the game. It keeps us focused. This is this is dharma practice. Again, it's not just sitting on your cushion. It's not just coming to class once a week, you know. It, it's a it really develops in a very gentle and gradual way to a moment by moment practice. So, good morning, Matteo. Good morning. Um, yeah, what I like in the, in this chapter is like especially the last two sentences. But like as I understood, like doesn't matter where you're going if you go to the mountain to the sun. It's like if you don't. If you don't sort out yourself, no, yep. not to fix it, to accept it and uh, work on yourself. And uh, probably sometimes, often, the, the problem is the solution. The solution is the problem. Yeah. So something like that, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's almost a, uh, at least on the, on the surface, a, a, a paradox or a contradiction there, isn't it? That we work on ourselves to let go of all the fabricated views of self. So it can seem, you know, rather... Uh, self-centered 
beginning to practice, but that's the whole point, you know, is to put our minds right where it belongs. And a mind that is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths is never in its body. It's always outside of its body, reflected in, in worldly conditions and entanglements or projected into the future or living in the past. It's never right here and right now. So all that we're doing is, is, is shedding this fabricated self that we've attached ourselves to. And what's left, literally what's left, is a human being. Thank you. Uh, let's go from the back row. Brett, good morning. Good, morning. good to see you. Uh, good, to, good to see you too. Good to be here. Um, thanks for your teaching. <clears throat> Enjoying what everybody has to say. Um, it was a good reminder for right speech and then have uh, wise restraint with delusion and when that comes up. and uh, It was pretty simple but uh, really good. And uh, I'll just keep on uh, filling the bucket one drop at a time. Yeah, I like it. Fill in the bucket one drop at a time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Aaron, welcome to our Sangha. You should know nobody has to speak here. And many people just take noble silence, but we'd love to hear what you, what you have to say, what you think of your class and uh, your meditation. Uh, I loved it. I'm just taking it all in. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I like the drop in the bucket one at a time, the gentleness. Yeah. This, is, it, the, the, this practice is characterized by gentleness. It can't be practiced any other way. So. Um, I hope you continue to come back. Uh, did you come with Brett? Maybe. Ah, so now, <laughs> I, I understand that. When people ask me about who's in the saga, sometimes I'll mention him, sometimes I won't. But, uh, I just, just so I, I assume that he's giving you a lot of background on what we do here, so you don't need to hear it from me again. But these meditations are on the website as well, and you can listen to them uh, from 5 to 45 minutes. If you're going to start a meditation practice, start with short sessions, five minutes or so twice a day and uh, read a little bit about what's on the website and come to class and uh, I hope you continue to join us thank you. welcome good morning Adam good morning John <clears throat> uh, thank you as always and it's great to see, see everybody again I missed you all last week we missed you um, this chapter got me thinking about um, the nature of skillful activity yeah. and I was reminded of a class we had earlier this year I can't remember which, which one it was but we were talking about how in every moment you have a choice that you can make, you know, between two extremes or, or taking a middle path or whatever. And um, the idea of, you know, acting quickly, you know, being aware that every moment is a chance to, to you know, you know, avoid those extremes yep. falling into that, you know, getting attached to one direction or, or the other, I think is really powerful. Um, and so I had, this, I had this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who goes to some other kind of meditation class. They do a lot of things. Apparently, um, she's frustrated with them. Like, well, come check out ours. Uh, but as you know, we were talking about that. You know, each moment you can choose to act wisely or, or act in ignorance. Yeah. And I think that's just a really that's my powerful takeaway from this. Thank, Thank you. you. That is a powerful takeaway. Isn't it? That is the middle way is developed through the eightfold path. The Buddha taught the eightfold path as the middle way away from extreme views that would otherwise develop without the path. And in that middle way, coalesce, where else could it? The middle way is life as life occurs. That's the focus. That's what the Eightfold Path brings us, the ability to be right here and right now. So the, the greatest wisdom in our universe, in the human universe, is just that. Be present for your life as your life occurs. That is the middle way. This is, when, when I'm seeing life through that middle way view, through right view, there is nothing extreme there, is it? No matter what I'm looking at. 
I could be looking at the most extreme form of human violence possible, but I'm just seeing what's there. To characterize what I'm seeing in any way then starts developing a wrong view or a lack of a middle view, doesn't it? So the middle way is just simply seeing what's here. Nothing magical, nothing mystical, nothing unattainable, nothing un- ununderstandable, unrecognizable. It's right here, it's right now. And Thank the, you, Adam. Just one more question. The middle way then is, like this chapter says, working on yourself first. Yeah. Before trying to save anybody else or yep. whatever. Yeah, and I would say first and always. You know, I, I always have to be within myself if I hope to be a benefit to anybody. You know, and I'm, even in the smallest, I'm not talking about teaching the Dhamma or anything else. So yeah, that, and we know we're walking the middle way, how? When our minds are calm and at peace. And that doesn't mean an awakened quality of mind, it just means right here and right now. I can enter that awakened state that is characterized by continual calm and peace by simply being present. And again, I emphasize it because the Buddha emphasizes to notice the quality of your mind right now. Krishnamurti used to say that too, but he didn't have a practice to, to go along with it. He would say, look at the life you're living, but not out of context. We do that same thing, but in the moment. Look at the moment we're living, maybe it'd be a better way to describe that. Look at the moment we're living. Do I want it to be any different? Or do I want myself to be any different in this moment? If I have, I've lost my mind. How do I know that? How can I make such a, how can John Haskell make such a declarative statement that if I want myself or this moment to be different, that I've lost my mind? You have an answer, Ron? How could it? How could it? You can't change what it is. It's already occurring. It doesn't mean that I have a preference about how I want my life to be. But if if I'm conflicted about what's occurring, I'm in conflict. It's called radical acceptance. Hello, Kevin. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Good to see everybody. And thanks for all the great comments and interpretations. And, you know, just to sort of put it in a different way, this really brings us back to the virtuous factor of the Eightfold Path, especially right action. And um, not just right, not just focusing on what wrong actions are, but right action as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Again, the Buddha didn't teach us one side of the coin. He gave us the whole picture, you know. Do this and this, you'll benefit from it in this way. This will be your experience. And if you don't, you're going to have this life to continue. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Um, yeah, a lot of this comes down to, uh, as we said before, the, the virtues, factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And that comes down to recognizing and abandoning any, any shred of ill will yeah. to yourself and to others. Yeah. Um, once you have that under control things roll along pretty nicely yeah and again it, it sounds almost simplistic but what it, it, what Buddha what Ram is referring to is is this this aspect that if I'm full of self-loathing I can't be I can't help but be other-loathing and if I'm other-loathing I can't help but be self-loathing it's, it's, it's the same thing it's the same view it's that I need to be different and if I need to be different, the world needs to be different. But if I'm no longer stuck in that self-loathing view, that wrong view, if I'm at peace with myself, I'm at peace with the world. I think Ron said it in the 
in a more clear and direct way than I did. <laughs> and, so the whole, and the whole middle part of, of the Karaniya Metasuda that we do after this is, is all about that. It's all about there that. There are no exceptions to yeah. so pay attention. out ill will. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the benefits are just tremendous. I mean, they, not even, it's, it's a stupid way to put it, tremendous. The benefits are the only thing that we want. Because ending ill will is the whole problem, meaning towards myself and towards others. And again, look out at the world. Imagine if people could just do this simple one thing and end conflict within themselves. We wouldn't need, we wouldn't need to be going through what we're going through today all across the world. Because it would have been resolved. And isn't it interesting that in, well, I don't know how many, I should look it up because I talk about it, in the millions of years of human history, hundreds of thousands that are recorded, or somewhat recorded, we haven't been able to figure out this one thing, how to get along with each other. Why? Because from what I can tell, the only one that said, look at yourself, has been ignored by most people, but not us here. End conflict within ourselves, and then it ends in the world. Is that too simplistic? To think that everyone will do it is too simplistic. But to know that it starts with me isn't. It's the essence of my own peace of mind. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Yeah, we, we can't get along with other people because we can't get along with ourselves. That's right. Yeah. And I think this practice teaches us how to be fully present with ourselves and for ourselves and kind and gentle to and for ourselves yep. because those selves are just constantly coming up and being jerks <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> and they're gonna they're gonna disappear and they're not me and um, if I'm distracted by them then I'm just gonna be a jerk to somebody else yep. so yeah. that's all I got for today that's great thank <clears throat> you yeah I, I, and I'm you know most of us, um, whether we're awake or not, don't intentionally go out to hurt people. Mm. I mean, we're not, you, you know, we're just, uh, human beings don't do that no matter how deluded. I mean, it takes a very small, um, yeah. there, some people are, are intentionally hurtful towards others. Most of us aren't. Most, most do it because we're just not thinking clearly. We're not acting clearly. But the results are the same. It's, it's keeping ourselves in constant conflict. And so, when I start justifying my behavior, usually I'll, it, it'll fall on my own view of morality, and I'll, I'll discount other people's view of morality because of that, meaning they're bad people because they don't think like me, and, and we just keep ourselves in conflict that way. Even if it's true, even if, even if, if it's societal true, it, 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 it's true to, to think of uh, Adolf Hitler as a bad guy. Well, of course he was a bad guy, but if I hold on to that view that this guy was a, whatever people might call him, I'm hurting myself. Because I understand this man as being deeply deluded, and because of that I can feel human compassion for a man that had to live like that. I also understand all the, all the, the terrible pain that he brought in the world, but I understand that. I think I talked to use this reference on Thursday, too. It doesn't excuse what somebody like that does but I understand it. And so then I can understand 
much more of the impact of that kind of hatred. And I understand humanity. And then I can take that understanding, rooted in my own understanding, and apply it in a gentle way to everything. Where does aggression come from? Where does that kind of ideology... By the way, Adolf Hitler, just keep using the example, he believed he was doing what he needed to do. He believed he was a, a savior for a very small group of people. There's your ideology, isn't it? But he felt he was doing what was right to do. Look at the results of it. But we all do that. We all act in ways that are rooted in ignorance that cause harm. Not on that kind of scale. But as a moment-by-moment -moment way of living in the world, most of us are striving for compassion. We're striving for peace. We're trying to get along. And most of our motivations... I didn't understand this when I was a younger person and I, I made illusions that I hurt people. Uh, because of my actions. I never went out to hurt somebody intentionally. I did strike a human being once. I still remember it. I was 16 years old and I was going to get my behind kicked if I didn't do something and I hit, I hit another kid. And I'm going to cry. To this day, I can feel what it felt like my fist hitting his face. Damn it. And it's the most sickening feeling I can recount right now. And I never did anything like that again. In other words, I never hurt somebody else again in that way. But I hurt a lot of people inadvertently because of my own ignorance, because of my own self-referential view. But I always portrayed myself and carried myself as a very wonderful person that never harmed anybody, full of compassion. <clears throat> I wanted to be, but I couldn't be. And that created even more tension. I see it in other people. And then that becomes its own form of self-loathing. I can't be the good person I want to be because it's not within me anymore. Or not within me at all. And again, it wasn't until I, I, I found a way to interrupt that conditioned thinking that there's something wrong with me and just started understanding I'm a human being that I was able to actually change my behavior. And how did I do it? I changed my mind. Good morning, Jen. Did I call on you yet? You did. <laughs> Started the whole time. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot in this. Good morning, David. You said in your comments there has to be suffering for liberation. And you said it probably 20 times. Today? Nope. Oh, okay. A word. You said it over and over again today. Understanding. You have to understand suffering for there to be liberation. And what's that mean? Understanding. Understanding the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. And that's your practice. Because you can say over and over again, understand. Bill will understand wrong view. But you have to practice. You have to jump in and understand. And then you understand why you're sitting. Because you're not just sitting to decompress from a hard day or you want to float at some point. You want to understand suffering and how to stop it. So, thank you. Thank you, David. I'm glad I, I picked you last. I think if I picked you first, I would have saved myself a lot of words today. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. And, and thank you all for joining. Uh, we, there's a, does anybody else have any questions or comments before we close? There was a lot said in this class. Um, 
We'll finish with Metta as we always do, and uh, we'll continue with the Dhammapada structure study on Tuesday. Matt will be teaching Tuesday's class. Uh, and also the, uh, the retreat uh, that we just had, uh, all the talks are posted on the, on the web page, and they're linked in the email. And it, it was a remarkable retreat, so if you get a chance uh, to listen to it or re-listen to it, uh, please do so. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. In the Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.